with open hearts to adore you. God, I, I ask you to take broken, sinful men and women, hearts that are so often divided by our love for this life and our love for this world and our desire to rule and reign in our own life. Lord, accept from these broken people the adoration of our heart that exists in this moment. Lord, cause us to spend these next five or six weeks focused on you, thinking of you, <coughs> rejoicing in the world around us with the message of hope of a Messiah. While the world is clamoring for peace on earth, trying to drive it in their human thinking and ways. Lord, help us to share the hope and the peace of Christ. Lord, give us the desire to share Emmanuel, God with us, with those around us. May the joy of redemption become fresh and new in these weeks as we celebrate the season of Christmas, the birth of Christ, the Redeemer, the Messiah. When I pray that your people with hearts filled with adoration but surrender themselves to you and to you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As I said, we are beginning this new series, Bethlehem Bound, and we're going to Begin at the beginning. The story of mankind. The story of God giving life to His creation. Genesis 1 talks about the creation that God created. The crowning moment of creation. Genesis 1 and 2 is that sixth day. He created mankind. Unfortunately, I think we realize and feel like we are that crowning achievement of God so often. But in our perfection, in Adam, there was a relationship with God that was quite honestly unfathomable to you and I. God walked and talked with his creation, his beloved. He created.
created Eve because he saw a need in Adam. He saw a longing. Even in perfection, there was a longing in Adam's heart. He created Eve. The end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. I don't know how long it was. I wondered, was it a thousand years? Was it a day? God gave a command early on that said, you can have everything in the place, but the fruit from that one tree. Stay away from him. It'll bring death. How could they know what death was? How could they comprehend death? That fateful day that came about. And again, I don't know. There's no, there's no, this is my spiritual imagination. Did, did Eve go for a week and look at the tree? Did she catch herself glancing over there occasionally? What caused her to come to that tree and begin to look on the fruit? Well, there's so much in that. Looking on the fruit. She didn't just look up and see a piece of fruit. She began to long at how beautiful it was and how good it was in comparison with everything else. You've got everything you want, but that one's the one I want now because I can't have it. Even in perfection. The enemy. Satan. The form of the serpent, the snake, comes and King James, I think, says beguiles. I like that word. He, he tricks her with conversation. Surely, you won't die. Did you really say you can't touch it? Oh, we can't touch it or eat it. God never said you can't touch it. You can play football with it. I don't think God would have cared. But what happens when we begin to play around sin. We end up in sin. That's exactly what happens with Eve. She begins to play around sin and Adam ends up in sin. Eve is deceived. Adam willfully takes the fruit and eats. And immediately mankind is plunged into sin. The Bible says that that after they ate, they hid. They took two things. They, they recognized that they were naked, which is interesting. And they hid from God. When you really begin to understand sin, you'll know that that's what happens to us. We realize we have nothing to clothe ourselves with when we stand before God. And so we run and we hide from God. Genesis chapter 3 begins to pour out the punishment for sin upon all those that participate. You see the consequences. Verse number 15. 
is the first indication that God had a plan. Now, I wish I could tell you all I understood why God allowed this plan to work out the way it did. But the scriptures tell me that my name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations of the world were ever set. So if I believe that, then I believe that God knew this was going to happen. And God made a plan. And God within Himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit determined that the only way for mankind to be redeemed would be for, for He Himself to pay the price. Because sin must be punished. God requires it. There's a cost. In the Old Testament, we learn that there must be a blood sacrifice to cover sin. We see that in, in Genesis. God covers the sin, the nakedness of Adam and Eve by taking an animal. I believe it was a lamb. It doesn't say that. But I believe it was a lamb. He took a lamb and took an animal and slay it. He slew it and he covered them with the skins. It was a blood sacrifice for their sin. That would be a blood sacrifice for our sin. The Son. In Genesis 3.15, the Bible says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. This is the, this is the, the consequence and the curse that goes to the enemy. The serpent. He says, you're going to crawl on your belly in the dust. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This verse has long been recognized as the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. It also gives us the first glimpse of the gospel. It is revealed in, in three essential truths. First, that we see that, that Satan is going to be the enemy of the human race. There's going to be a battle between, between Satan and mankind, God's greatest, most beloved creation, and the one who wanted God's throne. And it will reign and rule this hostility, but it also explains why God put hostility between Satan and mankind. Because Satan wants to rule. And God did not want mankind to be infected by that sin. Number two, it tells us that he would place a spiritual barrier between Satan's people, the seed of the serpent, and God's people. Her seed. It's interesting that they use the word her seed. We've talked about that before here. You understand that in human procreation, that it's through the man that life is transferred. The woman receives the man gives. And yet, there's going to be one who comes from a woman. 
first hint of a virgin birth. Nobody can. I, I guarantee Adam and Eve did not gather that. Apparently, a whole lot of writing from the Old Testament, a lot of people didn't gather that because they couldn't see it. Because it was hard to understand. They couldn't experience it. And it never happened before. That representative seed of the woman, a human being, Jesus Christ, the God-man, would deliver a death blow to Satan who would crush your head. But in doing so, would be bruised himself. He would bruise his head. This enmity between the two, this, this hostility that went on between the two of them follows throughout Scripture. It begins in Genesis. You come to the end of Revelation, Revelation 19 and 20, and you see the dragon, the, the serpent, the form of, of Satan being brought to, to complete destruction and the victory that was given because of the seed of the woman. And all this came about according to Galatians chapter 4 when the fullness of time was come. When it was the perfect time. When it was the right time. God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. But from Genesis 3 to Matthew or Luke or wherever you want to go to, there are thousands of years of longing of an empty manger and a lack of understanding and the, and the calling of a nation, of a people, humanly to God. None of that stuff was understood in the beginning of Genesis, was it? We look at it, and if we grew up in church, we see all of this, and we see what it is, and we say, we understand that. But according to what they went through in the day-to-day -day walk, it was thousands of years. As time went on, as is with mankind, they begin to distort they begin to get distracted. They begin to not see. And, and here's what, by the time Jesus is born, here's what's happened. Israel is now God's people. They're a nation with promises and laws and hope. <clears throat> There's been prophet after prophet. We've been reading in Isaiah the prophecies and hopes. They're, throughout the, the scripture, you see it. And there's this, this hope that there's going to be a dominant king going to come forth. And he is going to politically set up shop and take over and rule and reign. That is still a truth that will happen. But that's what Israel was looking for. In that, in that day of Roman oppression, they wanted relief. They wanted a king. They wanted a Republican or a Democrat. 
that sound a little bit like us, the church today. Oh, put me a president in that's going to give me what we want. Because that's going to solve the problem. Not according to the Word. Because that problem isn't going to get solved. Ever. In this life. Written somewhere between 740 and 680 B.C., Isaiah begins to predict imminent judgment and then eventual restoration for Judah and Jerusalem. Within that is probably one of the greatest promises that Israel hung on to. It's one that we love in the church. You probably grew up on it at Christmas time. Anybody recognize Isaiah 9? Verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born unto us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You understand why? They were looking for an earthly ruler that was going to come and, and make things come together. This is one that, that the government is going to come and rule. There's going to be a, there's going to be a wonderful counselor. A mighty God, a powerful warrior, an everlasting Father who will eternally take over and rule and reign. That's what we're still looking for today. In many ways, that prophecy still has an empty manger because we don't see it. But yet, hope. You come to the last book of the Old Testament. The book of Malachi. The prophet Malachi is assuring the post-exile Jewish community that there will be a Messianic king. It's coming. He wrote this somewhere around 430 B.C. Hundreds of years after Isaiah prophesied. Hundreds of years of waiting and longing and looking. He says that this king will come and judge his people. But he will also bless them and restore them. Malachi 3.1 The Lord all-powerful says, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way for me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are looking for will come to his temple. Yes, the messenger you're waiting for, the one who will tell all about my agreement is really coming. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 says, Look, I will send Elijah, the prophet, and he will come before the great and terrible time of judgment from the Lord. Elijah will help the parents become close to their children, will help the children come close to their parents. If you understand this, this was written in 430 B.C. Elijah lived somewhere around 1000 B.C. 
How's Elijah going to come? How can this prophecy be? At that point, Malachi finished his writing. And for over 400 years, Israel did not hear from God. 400 years. No word. No word of hope. No word of challenge. No word of chastisement. No word. How do you think the people of God in that they felt? Well, you, you could say they felt alone or abandoned. I think probably they just stopped worrying about it. They kept doing the ritual. They showed up for church. They showed up for church because you got to go to church. But they lost everything in their heart. And God said, I'm going to send a man in the spirit of Elijah, with the power of Elijah. And he's going to be, begin to proclaim. I'm not going to take time to read it today, but read Luke chapter 1. You will see the beginning. You'll see the predictions of John's birth. John will come and begin to proclaim one of the things that, that we're told very specifically in verse 16 of chapter 1 as God is, the angel is telling Zechariah, John's father, about this one that will be born to them, that will be the the forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 15 says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while He's still in His mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready the Lord for the Lord of prepared people. Some time later, just a few months later, in this whole story, the recording of the book of Matthew, this 400 year waiting period, you begin, the first book recorded in the New Testament is the, the Gospel of Matthew. Not the first Gospel written, but the first gospel recorded because it begins with the genealogy of the Jewish people. And it begins with this historical record of Jesus Christ who was the son of David, the son of Abraham. Without reading the whole thing, let me read to you just the last part of this genealogy. Verse 15 listing of these people. Elihu fathered Eliezer, and Eliezer fathered Nathan, and Nathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, 
who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There's hope that the manger will be filled, be empty no longer. All of this, hundreds of years of waiting, of ceremonial ritualism. And we sit today and we look back at them and we think, how crazy, how could they have missed it? How could they have not seen it? How could they not read and know? And I ask you, church, how is it that we miss it? It's been 2,000 years. And our hearing has gotten dull. And our behavior has gotten weak. And we plead from this pulpit in this church and we beg for people to open up the Word of God and read. And you have the heart on a Sunday morning that says, yes, I'm going to read this week. And the next Sunday morning we find a few sprinkles of hands. God with us we say He lives in us. That He rules and reigns in our life. Yet how much time do we spend with Him as our focus? Listen, I'm not, gonna, I'm not throwing rocks at you guys. I struggled getting my reading in this week. In fact, I didn't get all seven, six chapters in until this morning. So I'm not throwing rocks at you guys. I'm throwing rocks at me. I watched TV this week. Took a nap a couple of days this week. I spent time with me this week. Spent time sitting and drinking coffee this week. How can I miss it? I'm the pastor of the church. Has my hearing gotten dull? Has the ritual replaced the relationship? If I'm going to be honest, I have to say yes. Sometimes it does. Here's my fear. We're okay with that. We're okay with that. We can't be okay with that. We can't. God is with us. I think over the next five or six weeks, this Christmas, let's not be like the religious Jews of the Old Testament. 
Let's not miss the gift of Christmas. Let's us commit to be Bethlehem bound. Not just Bethlehem bound, but Bethlehem bound. Let's be bound to the message and the hope and the relationship of Jesus Christ. Over the next six or seven weeks, can we make him the focus? Will you make him the focus? Not Sunday for an hour, but Monday for 24, and Tuesday for 24, and Wednesday for 24. It's easy to sit here today and say, yes, that's my desire. But just like it was the desire in the temple, it has to get lived out. This year, can we make this a season of being bound to the hope of Christ? Father, thank you. Lord, you know that None of us want to just make this be a Sunday to show up, a Sunday to go home. All of us in this moment, in this hour, desire for God, for you to be supreme in our life. Lord, as so often happens, we like Eve look back and long for the things that look good in this life. Not recognizing the great gift that we have. Father, I pray this season, in this time, we will be bound for Bethlehem. And the hope that lies in a manger. And may we be eternally changed because of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, 